Thank you, Alchit, for your kind introduction, and uh, we really want to honor you for just the way that you've been leading this service, uh, leading us not just in rituals, but God's heart for what God wants to do. And I want to echo what he said to the, the team that led us in musical worship this evening. It was powerful. Thank you for serving Jesus with sincere hearts. I've got half a mic with me. That's bothering me. I don't know what to do with this. Thank you. Um, It's great to be with you. It's always a privilege for me to be able to preach and speak on what I believe God wants to say to us, not just as a church, but as individuals. And uh, as we were singing this last song, it was almost as if God was just reminding me of something specific. Um, All hail King Jesus. I think sometimes we forget there's a moment in history, in church history, especially when the Roman Empire was at its uh, strongest, where people would greet each other in the Roman Empire, and they would, when they get to someone, they would raise their hand, and they would say, Hail Caesar. Uh, because Caesar was viewed as a God. And in that moment, saying, Hail Caesar, it's a proclamation, Caesar is Lord. And in the Roman Empire, when you would get, get into a venue or get to a place of or walk into someone, they would be accustomed to go, Hail Caesar. And when Christians came to faith, and they accept and they recognize that Jesus is the Lord of Lord, that He is the ultimate King, they received a conviction in their hearts that they cannot say, Jesus is, oh, Caesar is Lord. And that was one of the things that sparked persecution in the church. Because Christians in the Roman Empire would go, when everyone else was saying, Hail Caesar, they would go, Jesus is Lord. So much so that it offended the Roman Empire and persecution broke out. My prayer for us is this generation is that we'll carry the name of Jesus well. There will not just be a generation that sings songs of Hail Jesus. Jesus is Lord, but there will be a generation that in all circumstances raises our hands and says, Jesus is Lord. And like the early Christians, we will probably face persecution. But there's a prevalent prayer that the early church prayed, and you see it in, in Acts 4 and 5. And they faced persecution. They said, God, would you stretch out your hand? Would you give us courage and boldness to safely proclaim your word? And may you move by your spirit so that we may see signs and wonders. As you are the generation that carries the name of Jesus, may you never fail in saying Jesus is Lord. And may it be your prayer that God would strengthen you and give you courage and boldness in all circumstances to declare that. And may God then in his grace stretch out his hand and may we see him move because he is worthy, not just in song but in everything to be declared, Jesus is Lord. That's on the sermon, I'm sorry. Just felt that on my heart, I want to speak it over you. May God give you courage and boldness to declare Jesus is Lord. I want to start off this evening, and I want to mention a couple of phrases. Uh, and as I mention these phrases, I want you to tell the person next to you what comes to mind when you hear this phrase. Okay, so... If you're sitting next to two people, decide who you're going to speak to with now. Otherwise, we're going to have too much conversations happening. Okay. If you're sitting next to someone and they decided to speak to the person on the other side, don't be offended. Okay. See it as an opportunity to speak to someone else. What comes to mind... When you hear the phrase, the living dead, quickly share with someone, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase, the living dead? 
great. So I asked share what comes to mind. Don't share a thesis on the living dead. But what comes to mind when you hear the phrase the living dead? What do you think about? Zombies. The apocalypse. The outbreak, the virus. In 2020, when it was COVID, everybody thought, oh, is this the apocalypse now? The living dead is a phrase that we use for zombies because they are living, but they are dead. Inside, they're dead. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase dead man walking? Again, share with the person next to you. Dead man walking. So dead man walking is now a common idiom that is used. But originally this phrase was coined whenever someone was on death row. And they were about to be executed. The, they, as prisoners, they would be taken down the hall. And the rest of the prisoners would come to their, their bars and they would shout as they are being taken to the execution chamber, dead Man walking. That's where this phrase came from. On their way to be executed, they would say, dead man walking. And it became a phrase to describe that there's an inevitable consequence lying ahead for them. They are living, but their life is meaningless because there's death waiting. Now it's become a phrase that we'll use to, to joke about. I said in the morning service, and now if you're married and you forget the anniversary, your anniversary, <laughs> you're a dead man walking. There were moments as a student where I felt I was a dead man walking. Going to that exam, and I just know there's not enough in this tank to give a proper answer. <laughs> dead man walking, an inevitable future. It's meaningless. It's dead. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase living sacrifice? So living sacrifice is a bit of an oxymoron. Because sacrifice implies something is dead. But living says you're alive but dying. I believe these three phrases gives us a summary of how most people live this world. I think these three phrases describe how many people actually approach life. You have people who live as dead men walking, dead women walking. They are living, but what they are doing has no purpose and no meaning. It is dead works. They are just going through life, and what they're doing is meaningless. It has no significance. Then you have people who live as the living dead. They have the appearance of being alive. But something inside of them is dead. They do all the things. They put on the masks. And you would think they are alive. But inside, something is dead. And then there are people who live as living sacrifices. Meaning, they devote their lives to a specific purpose and outcome. And as they live their lives, they are willing to make sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice to achieve this goal or purpose. And this goal and purpose could be to 
to be successful in whatever way, to be known, to be loved, or to look in a specific way. And they're willing to make sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice as they're living to achieve this goal. If you look at these three phrases, a living sacrifice, walking dead, or the living dead and the dead men walking. If you had to look at those three phrases, which one describes your life? In what way are you living? We are currently busy with a series called Counterculture. Now throughout this series, we look at how we as Christians are called to live. Because of what Jesus has done, we cannot just live nominal lives. We cannot go on and say we follow this amazing King, this Savior, this Lord above Lord, and our lives look the same as everyone else's in the world. We take the premises that because of Jesus, something has changed in us, and therefore our lives is counter to the culture that we're living in. In the last couple of weeks, we've been speaking about how does this look, and last week specifically, Pastor Marlon spoke about part of living counterculture is living from the presence of the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, relying on the Holy Spirit. Tonight, we're going to continue, and we're going to look at practically what does it mean to live counterculture? And we're going to do this from Romans 12. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to turn to Romans 12. Otherwise, you can follow me on the screen. I'm going to read from the NIV translation. So we're going to read together from verse 1. And remember, we want to find out what does it mean to practically live counterculture in this world because of what Jesus has done. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's that phrase. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has bestowed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we though many, Form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can approach your word with confidence and with faith, Lord. And Lord, we come to you this evening, and we pray that you would, by your spirit, come and do something through your word in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. I pray that you would guide my words in such a way that it aligns with your perfect will for each one of us tonight. And I, Lord, I pray that you would clarify your truth for us. And Lord, in the same sense that you would protect us against the deception and lies of the enemy. And Lord, as we humble ourselves onto you in your word, we pray, Lord, would you come and shape us? Would you come and change us? Lord, I pray even for some of us who's sitting here tonight and, and question the power of your word, question the relevance of your word. Lord, I'm reminded of the prayer. We do believe, help us overcome our unbelief. I pray in this moment that you would do something by your spirit that we cannot conjure from ourselves, that you would bring truth and light, peace and joy and understanding of your perfect will to each one of us. May you come and shape us for your kingdom and your purposes as we pray this in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. And many scholars believe that the book of Romans was Paul's magnum opus. This was his greatest and most significant work. The book of Romans is considered as one of the cornerstone 
foundation writings of the New Testament. It's of huge significance in terms of theology for each one of us. Martin Luther made the comment. He said, if something were to happen in the world, then they would destroy all the Bibles, everything we know about God, but one book of Romans would be persevered that Christianity would continue. That's how concise and significant the explanation of Christianity and the gospel is in the book of Romans. This is Paul's summarization. It's this systematic presentation of the gospel. Paul starts off and and he explains how how sin has deceived us and how sin has made human beings rebel against God and choose against God and what effect it had in our lives. And and he goes on to explain how how God in his mercy was reaching out for us and wanted to change and save us and how God did it, how he did it. He sent his son, what was the significance of the cross. Paul just systematically explains the heart of Christianity. I really want to encourage you to go and read the book of Romans. Look where it starts and how it ends. Paul explains that because of Jesus, we're restored into relationship with God. And because of Jesus, he goes on to say, we're more than conquerors in Christ. He says nothing can separate us from the love of God. No height, no depth, no nothing. He just goes on for 11 chapters. He's explaining the mercy of God and what God has done and how we don't deserve it and the wonderful gift through Jesus, new life we've received, the Holy Spirit, and how it changes our life. For 11 chapters, Paul's explaining this and he ends chapter 11 by saying, and all the glory and all everything is because of God and for God and he just ends on this height. It's God. And then in chapter 12, there's this transition. He says, therefore, It's a change in the letter. Paul says, because of God, we have to live differently. That's what's happening in chapter 12. He's now for 11 chapters explained the mercy of God. And in chapter 12, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, you should give yourself as a living sacrifice. This is your proper act of worship. Not just the songs we sing on a Sunday, your lifestyle of becoming a living sacrifice is true and proper worship unto God. That's what God deserves. Not just the songs that we sing, but the lifestyle that proclaims He is worthy. See, in view of God's mercy, don't live like the living dead. Don't live with the appearance of being alive, putting on this mask, acting as if everything is fine, but inside of you something is dead. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he died to bring life to our souls. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, don't, you don't have to live like the living dead. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, do not live like a dead man walking, as if there's no purpose and significance behind what you do, as if you can just do whatever you want to do in this life and it doesn't matter. Don't give your life to dead works of no significance in eternity. The fact that God was willing to send this son Die for your sins should tell you that God places worth to your life. God has a value on your life. Jesus didn't just die for some, he died for all. The fact that you're sitting here tonight and what Jesus has done should affirm his love, his value that he has on your life. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. There's a purpose behind the death of Jesus and a significance to your life. What we do and how we live is important in view of God's mercy. Don't live like the 
dead man walking, don't live like the living dead, but live as a living sacrifice. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Paul explains it. He's really thorough in this letter. It's not just saying, hey, being a living sacrifice. He now goes on to explain to this church, and I believe he explains to us, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? He says, in view of God's mercy. Would you just quickly say that with me? In view of God's mercy. I'm going to repeat that over and over. It's a bit of a spoiler for the sermon, okay? Uh, but hopefully tonight, when you lay down your head on your pillow, you go, in view of God's mercy. But Paul says, in view of God's mercy, do not conform to the pattern of this world. If you want to be a living sacrifice, do not conform to the pattern of this world. This implies that in this world, there's only two ways of living. Either you live to, according to the pattern of this world, or you don't. There's not an in-between way. This world is built and works according to a certain pattern. Either you conform to the pattern, or you live different to the pattern. There's not a middle way. So often as Christians, we try to find the middle way. There isn't the middle way. You can't go, Jesus is Lord sometimes. And other times, I'm maybe Lord. It's two ways. Either the pattern of the world or counter the pattern of this world. So what is the standard of this world? If you were to look at this world, if you were to look what's happening in this world, and you were to summarize the pattern of this world, what would that be? Again, just quickly with the person next to you, what do you think is the pattern of this world? If you were to summarize it, what do you see? I'm sure we can give a lot of answers. I'm sure if we look at the world, we see hatred. We see discrimination. We see injustice. We see corruption. We can see pain and hurt and suffering. But I want to suggest tonight that if we had to summarize what is the pattern of this world, then I believe the pattern of this world is best described as self-centered, self-seeking, and selfish. Because everything that we mentioned now is born out of self-seeking, self-centeredness. A view that I'm better than others. A view that what's best for me is the most important thing and I don't care how it affects other people. The pattern of this world says it's all about you. Think on every advertisement that you see. It's aimed at what you deserve and what you, how it would make your life better, and it's just all about you. The pattern of this world says it's you. When sin entered this world, when Adam and Eve fell, what was the promise or the half-truth that Satan told them? You would be like God. It's you. It's all about you. That's the pattern of this world. Self-centered, self-seeking selfish and it's all about you it's very simple either we conform to the pattern and that's the way we live where everything is about you or you live counter and you say it's not about me in view of Jesus in view of what he's done in view that the son of man was willing to humble himself and become nothing. In view of the creator, willing to come and live amongst the created and then live a perfect life where he did not sin. 
where he did something that none of us can do in complete obedience to the Father, and that he was willing to take my place and die in my place, and not just die, but take the penalty of sin that I deserved. That he was willing to do that, but not just the suffering, but that he was willing to go to hell and defeat death and defeat sin and was raised from the dead, and he's sitting next to the Father now on the right hand of God the Father, and he's interceding for me and you. He's not done. He's still to this day interceding on our behalf. In view of that, this life cannot be about me. It needs to be about something bigger than me. I cannot be greater than that. And to live a sacrificial, a living sacrifice life says, I live in such a way that my life testifies. It's about someone greater than me. It's not about me. And I don't live for myself. And everything that I do is aimed at pointing other people to something greater. It's not about me. We live in such a way that our lives testifies to someone greater. But Paul goes on. He says, in view of God's mercy, in view of what we've explained and seen now, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's part of how you live differently. That's part of how you live counterculture. Because what we think is really important. See, our thoughts influences our emotions and our decisions. You don't just randomly feel stuff. You don't just randomly do stuff. It starts with a thought. If I mention load shedding, what comes to mind? There's an emotion. We can probably make it a little bit lighter and say, if I mention the blue bulls, what comes to mind? This, oh, <laughs> winners, <laughs> that's bold. <laughs> but I'm glad they're back on track. Okay, I'm glad they're back on track. If I go Manchester United, what comes to mind? It's just my wife. I'm just so thankful you're here. Manchester who? <laughs> our thoughts influences our emotions. And what you think about and what you feed your mind will influence the way that you feel daily. And it will influence the decisions that you make. Every decision that you make starts with an idea. You don't just randomly open up your phone. There's an idea. I'm wondering what's happening on Instagram. Let me open it up. And our, our emotions and our decisions will lead to our actions. The decisions and the emotions that we feel will, will lead to what we do. And if you continually do something, it becomes a habit. And habits and actions will ultimately lead to your destiny. Because that what you habitually do, that's what you become. But it starts with an idea. See, these actions that you habitually do becomes your habits and your beliefs. And it will influence your future. So what we think about is important. What you feed your mind is really important. So we need to ask ourselves... What is shaping your thought life? If you just think over the last three days, what's been shaping your thoughts? What have you allowed to shape the things that you're thinking about and influence your emotions? We need to be careful what we're looking at. We need to be careful what we're listening to. We need to be careful what we give our attention to because that will influence our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, our decisions, our beliefs, our habits, 
and our future. See, in view of God's mercy, we have to go, if I want to be a living sacrifice, I need to be careful what I feed my mind. In view of God's mercy, in view of what Jesus has done, we see that Jesus didn't just defeat sin and death, but he also redeemed our thought life. Because he's defeated the power that it has over us. And God can redeem our thought life. Because of what Jesus has done, we are restored back into relationship with Jesus, back into relationship with God. That means we may know God, we may know His truth, we may know His ways, and we may discern His will. That's what Paul is saying. You will know the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. By implication, if we seek God, in prayer and in His Word, by His Spirit, He would come and change our thought life. Are you feeding your mind? Are you seeking God's truth and His will? Paul says, if we do this, you will be transformed in your mind. The power of the Holy Spirit will change our thoughts change our emotions, change our decisions, which will lead to a change in our actions and change in our habits, change in our beliefs, and God will change our future, starting with how we seek Him in relationship for His truth and His will. It's counterculture. We don't just rely on our own will. We don't rely on popular opinion. We don't rely on what social media says. We seek God. We say, God, influence my mind. Transform my mind. Help me to think different than the pattern of this world. Paul goes on to say, in view of God's mercy, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And this is the difficult one. What Paul is saying, guard against pride in your life. And none of us like to speak about pride. Some of us here goes, oh, luckily, this is not something that I have to deal with. That idea tells you there's something. There's no one in this room that doesn't deal with some form of, some form of pride every day. That's the natural inclination of our hearts. Sin is rooted in pride. All of us face it in some form or another. It is something that we have to guard against. It's something we have to be aware of. And it's something that we actively have to fight against. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, wrote the following. He said, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It's when Satan and the other angels believed that they could be like God. Pride changed angels into devil, devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. Are we seeking God? Are we willing to daily seek Him? Or is it enough just to come to church once a week? Pride tells us we don't have to seek God. Pride tells you you're okay. Pride tells you you're too busy for God. Pride tells you what you're doing and what you're spending your time on is more important than seeking God. Pride does not seek God. See, pride comes in many different forms. Pride makes us independent. You function on your own. You function not in full dependence on God. You make decisions without God. You stumble into situations without God. 
We, you just trust your own ways, your own understanding. It makes you independent. Pride makes you entitled. I deserve more. I deserve better. Shared with a friend of mine this morning after the service. How many of my relational problems is rooted in my personal pride? Because I expected the other person to do something else. I wanted the other person to do something else. I thought I deserved something else. It's entitled. It's a form of pride. Pride is, the, is a demanding attitude that expects from others what you're not willing to do yourself. It's a demanding attitude. And you expect everyone else to act and behave in a certain way, but you're not willing to do it yourself. Pride creates an ungrateful and unthankful attitude. Nothing is good enough. Nothing is enough. Pride makes us critical. Constantly finding fault with everything and everyone. Critical in, that, in the way that you are critical on others, what you're actually saying is, I can do better. I could have done that better. I would have thought that through better. I could have preached that sermon better. Pride blinds us for our own faults and our own mistakes. It creates in us in a self-righteousness, meaning you're constantly justifying your actions, constantly justifying the way you're acting and things that you're doing. Pride hardens our hearts, makes us unloving and insensitive towards others. Pride makes us unteachable. Not open to input, not open to be wrong, not open to learn. Pride makes us act superior to others. Maybe not intentionally, but pride is a deep-rooted belief that I am better than someone else. I'm better than that race, that ethnicity. And you might not say it and think it, but pride makes us look down on each other. We need to guard against it. This is part of the pattern of the world, and we need to live different. James 4 verse 6 says, but he, that's God, gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is why this is so important. We have to guard against pride because God opposes the proud. You know what God can do with a humble spirit? Anything. Nothing is impossible for what God can do if you have a humble spirit. But if your spirit is full of pride, God will not force you and he will not manipulate you. He will resist you. But a humble spirit, God gives more grace and gives more favor. If you want to change the world, humble yourself. If you want God to use you mightily, humble yourself. If you want to see God move through your life, humble yourself. Because God gives more favor and grace. Whereas pride brings disconnection. In view of God's mercy, in view of Jesus being willing to become a servant, how can we exalt ourselves? If Jesus was willing to humble himself, how can we go, I'm great for whatever thing? In view of God's mercy, we see that everything that we have and everything that we are is based on the grace of God. It's because of Jesus. Even before you knew him, God already demonstrated his love and grace towards you. 
and sitting here tonight, everything that we are and everything that we have is by the grace of God. So you have nothing that you can brag of. Because everything's from God and because of God. It's arrogant. It's arrogant to think, oh, I can boast on what I did, what I have. It's by the grace of God. Imagine if you were to lose all of God's grace in this moment. How would your life look different? If for whatever reason God would just lift His hand of grace upon your life, how would your life look differently? It's by the grace of God. Humble yourself. And then Paul goes on and he says, in view of God's mercy, if you want to live counterculture, not just change your mind and do not conform to the pattern of the world, God against thinking more highly of yourself than you would. Um, and remember, when I say humble yourself, it's not degrading yourself. He says with sober judgment, see what Jesus did. And because of Jesus, you are loved and accepted and there's value on your life. You are not nothing. But God adds that value, not people and things. But from that place, he says, in view of God's mercy, recognize that each member belongs to all the others. And Paul is explaining to this church, and I believe he's explaining to us, that when Jesus gave his life, when he died for our sins and was raised from the dead, it wasn't just to save us and to help us be forgiven for sins and then to help us go and live for ourselves. God saved us and changed our lives to make us part of something, a story bigger than ourselves. And you belong to a greater story than your story. A story that testifies about the glory of God. A story that echoes into eternity story that's about God. You know, in eternity, there's not going to be a moment, guys, this is the story of Jesus, and now for your entertainment, we're going to speak about the story of Jonathan. It's going to be one name, one name that's going to be lifted up above all other names, and that's the name of Jesus. That's the one story that will count in eternity. And we have the privilege of being part of that story, not building our own story. And Paul tells them, and he says, you belong to something bigger than yourself. You belong to a community that glorifies God. On your own, you cannot do it. See, this idea of belonging to each other means we need each other. And we need people in our lives. I want to use the example of a puzzle piece. You'll see there's a picture there on the screen. Um, this is a puzzle. It's one of our puzzles. Uh, it's called a family puzzle. Now, the idea behind this family puzzle, there's bigger pieces like the one that I have in my hand, and then it gradually becomes smaller and more, more obscure pieces. Um, so on my left-hand side, which is your also left-hand side, um, that's the bigger pieces. And the idea is that the smaller children in the family do the bigger, easier parts, and the more mature adults do the more difficult parts of the puzzle. So yesterday I asked my kids um, that I want to use this example, and would they build the puzzle? It takes fairly long to build this puzzle. Uh, it helped us keep them busy yesterday. Um, but looking at that, even though it's not complete, you get a picture of what's, what it's about. But in my hand, I have one small piece. And this is probably the biggest piece on the puzzle. But if this was the only piece that you saw, there would be no, no way of telling what this puzzle is about. If I passed it around and every one of you got an opportunity to look at this piece, you would not be able to tell me what this puzzle is about. And you know what? Even though this piece is unique and there's no other piece like this puzzle, on its own, it means nothing. On its own, it's a random piece. 
But if this, this piece is positioned correctly around other pieces, it contributes to a bigger picture that tells a bigger story. That's the idea what Paul is saying. He's saying you need people around you because the story of God is greater than you on your own. And together we are better. Together, united with each other in community, we portray a better picture of Jesus and the love and grace of God. This is incredibly liberating because this means you on your own does not have to be Jesus. But together, together we cover each other where we fall short. And together we are a better representation of the mercy and the love and the grace of God and who He is. What do you do with a puzzle piece that's not part of the puzzle? You throw it away. No one has this random draw with lost pieces of puzzles. Because like this puzzle means nothing. This is a picture of a dead man walking. It's meaningless. Unique, special, part to play, but on its own, it means nothing. God died so that you may experience community. And you have a part to play. And you are better in community than on your own. But pride, pride will tell you, convince you that you don't need people. Pride will tell you you'll get disappointed and you'll get hurt. And pride will tell you it's better on your own. Paul uses the example of a body. See, a body needs every body part. But a body can function without a finger. Needs a finger, but can function without a finger. Body needs an eye, but it can function without an eye. But I cannot function without the body. Outside the body, the I is weird. <laughs> Outside the body, it's a random finger. Outside the body, the I has no purpose and no function. You are called to be part of the body of Christ. And you have a part to play. But if you choose not to be, you're the one that's missing out. There's life to be found in this body if you're willing to commit to it. Culture of this world says it's all about you. You do your own thing. You be you. Jesus says, don't be you. Be part of my body. And in my body, be, be unique and fulfill your function. But it's not you, it's us. And part of being a living sacrifice is to commit to a community of believers. And our community of believers and our church, we commit by serving in this body. We commit by being in connect groups, in discipleship. We build relationships because not only do you need the body, turn to the person next to you and tell them, they need you. You're not just part of the body to receive, but you're also part of the body to give. And just as you need the body, just as the person next to you need you, so you need 
This is God's design. But it requires humility. It requires humility to say, I am not the best on my own. It requires humility to say, I'm at my best when others are around me. We are better together. So to conclude tonight, in view of God's mercy, you don't have to live as the living dead. Maybe for whatever reason, you've gone through a season of disappointment or struggles, or, or maybe you've never experienced new life in Jesus, and, and you sit here tonight, and when I ask the question, how are you living, you said, I'm the living dead. You have the appearance of being alive. You've put on the mask. Something inside of you is dead. In view of God's mercy, you need to hear tonight that God has died to bring life to your soul. And you don't have to live as a living dead. See, if we lose sight of the mercy of God, we become dead men walking. If we lose the gospel, the mercy of God is the gospel. If we miss sight of the gospel, if we start living apart from the gospel, we become and we live lives like dead men walking. We start to live only for ourselves. We become prideful and self-seeking and self-centered. We begin to live independent, not seeking God in His truth. We live as if we don't need people. And ultimately we do what we do and how we live becomes meaningless, dead works of no significance because it's all about us. But in view of God's mercy, it means we become living sacrifices. Daily we embrace humility in view of the gospel. And because of Jesus, our lives becomes a response to the gospel every day. A response where we live for Him, not for ourselves. A response where we seek Him and allow Him to change our minds and our lives. A response where we view ourselves as He views us. We don't exalt ourselves above others because we view others as He sees them. We become living sacrifices, acknowledging that we need people around us. And we commit to living connected in spiritual family, dependent on others, serving each other, ministering unto each other, so that God may be glorified. And we choose to become less, so that God may become more. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. It means daily, daily I remind myself of the gospel, what Jesus did, and how I respond to him. Let's close our eyes. Tonight, I want us to do two prayers. One, there's a prayer for those who live like the living dead. Where you can go and say, God, no more. I want you to bring life to my soul, life to my body. I want to experience new life. I'm done putting on masks. I'm done trying to be better and do better knowing that something inside of me is dead. Looking at what you've done, Jesus, and I say, that is enough. I choose to trust you and follow you. Would you bring life to my soul? If that's you, I want to pray for you, and I want to ask that you would just raise your hand, just as a moment of acknowledging unto God, God, I'm living as a living dead. 
we're going to pray into that now. But there's also a group of us that maybe tonight realize that for whatever reason, you've made this life about you. You've become distracted by the things of this world. You started to live according to the pattern of this world. You've harbored pride in your life and, and you're just living a life that has no meaning in view of eternity. You're living like a dead man, a dead woman walking with no significance. For you, there's a moment to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've made this life about me. I'm sorry that I've lost sight of the gospel. Would you forgive me? Would you help me? Would you strengthen me to live a life that matters in view of who you are? Would you help me to commit to family, to trust the people around me, to trust that where you've placed me? Would you come and change something inside of me? If that's you, living like a dead man walking, I want to pray for you as well. It would be great if you can just respond. Maybe just lift up your hands in this moment. Sign of surrender. eyes closed, let's pray into this. I'm going to give you an opportunity just for personal prayer. You've already acknowledged where you are in your walk with God. He knows this, but just in your own words, would you say, God, I choose tonight to trust you. Father, you're full of mercy and grace. And in this moment, Lord, I want to thank you for for those people who are saying, Lord, there's something inside of me that's dead. And Lord, I pray that in this moment that you would come and do something by your spirit, Lord. I pray that you would awaken in them new life, Lord, that you would make them aware of what you're calling them to, Lord, and that you would bring restoration to their soul. Lord, by faith, we declare that when you died on the cross, you had this moment in mind. And that you would come to bring life and life in its fullness. So, Lord, therefore we ask now, by your grace, would you come and change something in their souls? Would you come and bring life? You are the life giver. You are the only one worthy. You are the only one able to bring that what is dead back to life. And in this moment, may you see their hearts. May you see their repentance in front of you. Would you honor that, Lord? Would you bring life to their soul? And Lord, I will pray that you will answer the prayers of everyone that acknowledges and sincere hearts, repents in front of you and say, Lord, I've been living for myself. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, Lord. I pray that you would give them new eyes to see. I pray that you would deepen their understanding of who you are and what you've done through the gospel. I pray that you would give them uh, the ability to experience your spirit more, Lord. And I pray that as you do this in their lives, Lord, that you would come and bring a change that is so significant that they would live for something greater than themselves, Lord. That their lives will testify of who you are, Lord. I pray that you would give them courage, those who are fearing of committing to spiritual family, Lord. I pray that you would come and do something tonight. Bring conviction to their hearts, to where you've called them from. And Lord, as we as a church submit ourselves unto you, Lord, and we we try to humble ourselves, Lord, we pray and we ask, would you come and use us for your kingdom? Lord, we declare that we believe together we are a better representation of who you are. Together you can do so much more through us, Lord. And therefore, Lord, we choose to humble ourselves in view of who you are. And Lord, as we do this, as we humble ourselves, I pray, like you say in your word, that you would show favor on our lives, that you would show more grace, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as individuals and as a church so that we may be a blessing unto others and so that others may know that you are God and we are not. Lord, you are worthy. We declare it again tonight. This life's about you. It's not about us. 
Help us to live with the gospel in front of us, Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for what you've already done, Lord. And we just with a sincere heart say, we love you, Lord. We honor you. And we say, amen. I want to put a challenge out for us as a church. For the next seven days, for the next week, would you start your day with a simple prayer? Can this be our challenge? A simple prayer, one minute prayer. God, would you remind me of your word? Would you remind me of your gospel and how do you want me to respond today? It's a simple prayer. As you wake up in the morning, would you say, God, would you remind me of who you are, what you've done, and how do you want me to respond? Imagine what can happen if we humble ourselves in front of God. Imagine what He can do in your life if you live in humility in front of Him, with the gospel as our guiding light. Can we commit to this? Amen. Thank you, Alka. 